The Guardian. 155 countries have at least one law that limits women's economic opportunities. A hundred states put restrictions on the types of jobs women can do, and 18 countries allow husbands to dictate whether their wives can work at all. They have to know that they are worth exactly the same than boys, but they tend to grow up with the feeling that they're not worthy of being in leading positions. They're not worthy of doing something really good. If a woman has confidence in herself and if she has her self-esteem, she knows she's a woman and she knows she can do it, she knows where to begin, I think it's something that will help women to become leaders. I'm Liz Ford, and in this month's Global Development Podcast, we discuss the barriers that stop women and girls fulfilling their potential and look at what needs to be done to change the story. Uh, Poverty, I think, from my point of view, is a main factor that women can't uh, reach uh, decision-making positions in Palestine, Uh, the unemployment. So could economic barriers be holding women back? Wala Kareka is director of the Psychosocial Counselling Centre for Women based in Palestine. Women uh, in Palestine are more educated than men. The majority of, uh, of the uh, university students uh, are girls, but uh, after they graduated, more than 60% of them are unemployed. For many women, getting into the workplace is just the first of many steps. According to UN Women's flagship report published in April, Globally, women earn an average 24% less than men, work more hours and have less chance of receiving a pension in later life. The owners uh, of uh, business, they, they find it, it easier for them to employ men than women because uh, women need to be pregnant and she will ask for vacation and uh, uh, she, um, um, she, she all the time worry about her children, so it's easier for them to employ men. My name is Gila Rosenberg. I'm the project manager of the Young Lesbian Center in Hamburg, Germany. Yeah, I think in Germany we have a totally different uh, situation. It's probably quite similar to the to the UK. Um, women don't get paid the same than men, so women in higher positions have to work probably double as hard as men have to. They're not taking serious in their leadership positions. I'm Sarah Iqbal. I'm the program manager of the World Bank Group's Women, Business and the Law Project. And what we do is really measure the legal environment for women in 173 countries. In, in high-income economies, it may be the, the situation around maternity, paternity and parental leave, and are there childcare options for women. If, if women can't uh, have a good infrastructure, for the responsibilities they face in the home, uh, you know, if there's no place for them to leave their children, then it may be more difficult for them to work or have the same opportunities at, at work as men. But in, in lower income economies in certain parts of the world, it may well be that there are different restrictions in place. In some countries, actually, things like sexual harassment and domestic violence actually have a, a large impact. Uh, on women's ability to to work. In other countries where domestic violence is is particularly prevalent, we see women dropping out of the workforce or uh, sort of impingement in their productivity because they'll take days off when they they suffer from violence and, and there are not a lot of resources that they can turn to to deal with that. 
Yannick Lemarek is the Deputy Executive Director for Policy and Programme at UN Women and has identified the three main barriers he sees to women reaching leadership positions. One is the gender gap in access to productive uh, assets. Another one is discriminatory uh, uh, law, discriminatory regulation, and the other one is the social barriers. In Sierra Leone, Aisha Johansson overcame all obstacles to get to the top in a very male-dominated profession. We caught up with her earlier this month when she was in London for the Trust Women Conference. So obviously we hear a lot about how it's difficult for women to get into business and politics and everything else, but football, whole other thing, how did that happen? Football's always been in my blood, my DNA, um, with my father being uh, the chairman of a very big established football club. It all started with um, the humanitarian project, FC Johansson, and it was just um, a group of young kids, you know, eight, nine, eleven-year-old kids after the the, the Civil War, displaced kids, um, homeless, really not doing anything. So I approached them and, and I offered that, you know, if they could get back into school, then I would help them, you know, with, uh, with the, the, the football and, okay, with a bit of money as well. And it worked. It became a very personal and maternal thing for me because these were kids who, um, some of them had lost their parents and had no direction and they were far too young. And so one thing led to another and they would do their small mini uh, community leagues and then um, one day I had this crazy idea that I would um, take them out of the country uh, for an international tournament in Sweden and everybody thought I was crazy and I probably was at the time. And it's just one wonderful inspirational story after the other with, with going to Sweden, they, they, they were silver medalists and uh, uh, invitations started to pour in. Real Madrid invited us uh, to play their youth side before you knew what was happening. We were in Las Vegas for the Mayor's Cup. And the success of FC Johansson gave Aisha the kudos to go for the job at the FA. But being in a position of leadership in such a male-dominated profession brings its own challenges. It's, it's just uh, the fear of being bullied fear of sexism, um, the knowledge, um, not knowledge, but that, that whole thing about football is for men, how dare you? Um, I've been told how dare you several times, what do you know? Um, not every young girl is up for that, um, to be told that several times over. And so I think it's so important that women like myself um, are out there even more speaking about the challenges that yes there will be challenges but you can overcome these challenges if you are committed enough. Although the past 20 years has seen an increase in the number of women holding senior and middle management positions it will be more than a hundred years before gender parity is achieved at top level positions and today just five percent of women are CEOs in the world's largest corporations. So how can the private sector help shift these barriers? Sarah Iqbal from the World Bank again. One is actually to concentrate on the issue, to discuss it, to talk about it, and to build a pipeline for women to get into leadership roles. In general, women tend to have different styles than men. And it's not that one is better or worse, but rather that one is 
accounted for and the other is not. So, for example, women may not push their way forward in the workforce in the same way as men. And I think what the private sector can do is really account for that, uh, really sort of set up programs that increase gender diversity in, uh, in the workforce. Felicite Ramalika is from Rwanda and is a CEO and founder of the Organization of Women in Sports, whose main objective is empowering women through football. She recalls her path to a position of leadership. Uh, what I can say is that women have sometimes the potential and they don't have a chance to express it out. But time came when my husband left me and went to liberate uh, Rwanda. As a salary of a nurse, you cannot look after the four children, take them to school and look after you. So I decided to start up a, a restaurant. I had a restaurant, I could work in the hospital in the morning, they even got the restaurant. So within those four years, this is when I realized I had the potential of being an entrepreneur, I had the potential of speaking out uh, because of what I went through. So as time went on, I realized I could do business, I could speak out, I could try to see people changing their minds. I think it took me about 10 years to be accepted in the National Football Federation, whereby I'm the president of the Women Football Commission, which did not exist before. Yeah, and um, I'm on board of the International Olympic Committee, uh, so, and uh, I won an award as an Ashoka Fellow. So all this is just because I had the new idea of empowering women through sports to expel the culture and social beliefs that hinders or limits women's participation into the country's development. Let's go back to Sarah Iqbal from the World Bank. You see a lot of girls predominantly working in sectors or moving towards sectors where women predominate. So, for example, in the healthcare and education field which are both great, but the question is girls should be able to work in, in any field that they want to, whether it's the STEM field, whether it's healthcare education, whether it's entrepreneurship. Education is, is a key building block in determining what girls' aspirations are for their future lives. We've seen actually really interesting models of where the private sector works with universities, works with uh, secondary and tertiary education, to actually increase the pipeline for girls and women in certain sectors. Habiba Mohamed is the team leader at the Centre for Girls' Education in Nigeria. I think uh, the first step is for the government of like Nigeria to be able to like support the public schools in a way that the teachers are well trained, the quality of education in the school is very good, so that when these girls graduate, from secondary school, they are able to like get the certificates that will qualify them to move to uh, higher institutions. Like our first cohort of girls, when they graduated, I think it were, we have very few of them that were able to meet the criteria of moving to a higher institution. We need not only the support from their parents, but the government who has to support to train the teachers and to be able to make life easier for the girls when it comes to education. Uh, one is Amina Yusuf. She was one of the girls that we uh, sponsored into secondary school. And uh, she has completed her secondary school. She has been trained as a girl ambassador. Uh, she is a cascading mentor in the organization. And uh, when uh, Malala came to Nigeria to talk to our president about the Chibok girls, uh, Amina was one of the two girls that were there to, like, uh, uh, meet with Malala. Uh, during this UN SDG, the Malala Fund again invited Amina to be one of the five girls that supported Malala when she spoke at the United Nations. I was there too with her. 
Amina Yusuf from Nigeria. The girl Amina always say, if I hadn't gone to school, nobody would have even known that I exist. And I am Malala from Pakistan. Most of our girls admire the teenager Malala because they feel that if she is uh, in a, a position to like speak on behalf of millions of girls in the world, why won't they stand and speak for Nigerian girls too? So I think uh, it's something that is motivational. Positive role models have proven to be a great motivator for younger girls, and for many women, their first female role model is their mothers. Back at the Trust Women Conference, Gila, Huala and Suha agreed. I think my mother was my role model because she's a really strong woman and she always worked even though she had two children on her own. I feel my mother, she's a great woman. She uh, um, takes care of 11 children and uh, she works. She's religious but she never told me to cover my hair for example and uh, and uh, to not participate in any activities la- uh, that I like to be part of. Same here. My mom is my role model. She just went against traditions and society to have us get really good education and practice her own rights. And I really look up for her because uh, she fought, fought for her own rights. As you can see, the three of us, we are successful women and we had a strong role model. So if you don't have a role model at home, I think it's important for social workers, teachers to be role models. Aisha Johansson in Sierra Leone gets inspiration from the strengths of women around her. For me, I think um, the real people who've inspired me are the women of Africa and just how they stand up for themselves uh, uh, up against adversity, and we have a lot of it. From conceiving to childbirth to fighting Ebola, fighting wars and... um, wanting to fight for your place in society. So looking at these women who are not complaining, but they're just getting on with things and striving and surviving, they, they're, they're my role models and they inspire me. Habiba Mohammed from the Centre for Girls' Education started as a mentor in 2008, working in what they call safe spaces for girls. In the safe spaces, things that are mentored there include literacy and numeracy to enhance their reading and writing skills. We have uh, issues that has to do with uh, reproductive health and uh, we have uh, entrepreneurship skills too, which help these girls to be able to uh, build their economic capacity to want to do what they really like uh, enjoy doing in life and uh, there are other life skills like uh, building their self-esteem being able to like negotiate with parents on issues that has to do with maybe getting them married or getting them dropped out of school so uh, and in the safe spaces too we do this uh, leadership training where girls become cascading mentors to other younger girls In September, UN member states adopted the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, one of which is dedicated to achieving gender equality. How will the SDGs help to get more women into power and break the glass ceiling? Yannick Glamarek from UN Women. For the first time, we have a universal uh, normative framework that applies as much to uh, the North, the industrial countries, than the South, that cover all the dimensions of sustainable development and that, uh, that has the ambitions to, uh, to leave no one behind. And uh, 
So this universal agenda, de facto, is also a very strong commitment to gender equality and uh, women empowerment. One of the 17 sustainable development goals is dedicated to gender equality and women empowerment. And in addition, we have a specific target in almost every single SDGs to mainstream gender equality and women empowerment in our work in agriculture, in nutrition, in climate change, in infrastructure, etc. Suha Zaida from the Sharuk organization in Palestine believes that in patriarchal societies, women must be educated about their rights. Since our society is patriarchal society, it's really important to involve men in taking action and advocating for women's rights because um, it's, it's a society controlled by men and if they don't do change, so who else is doing it? So it's important to engage men at really young ages to be involved in decision-making or to be taught about women, women's rights and um, about uh, how can they be active in the society and change it for a better future for women's rights. Men can be a barrier if they, if they believe that uh, women empowerment means that somebody is to gain women and somebody is to lose men. And that's the reason why it's extremely important to engage uh, men and boys in uh, fostering gender equality and women empowerment, uh, making clear that uh, when we speak about women empowerment, we do not speak about the zero-sum game. We, we speak about a win-win option. Countries where women are empowered are richer, healthier, more stable, happier, and uh, the best way to basically uh, uh, remove the fears from some men that they are about to lose something is to engage them into this overall uh, change management process. Your young woman is uh, supporting a major campaign, E4C, and the objective of the E4C campaign is to basically reach out to, uh, to men and boys and uh, get them to make a commitment in terms of uh, what they can do to support uh, gender equality and women empowerment. And it's a very, very successful campaign. Let's hear from Solicitor Uemalika. Start them from when they are young. Tell them they're all the same. So once they grow up, you find, you'll find that in the near future, we shall not have that problem again. All children will be equal, and they will realize that they can make a difference. So what does the future look like? For example, how would having a woman as president of FIFA make a difference? The, the mere fact that it be a female at the top, the novelty would 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 give the, the whole football world, uh, the whole uh, football management a, a new dimension, I think. I think we women, we come with a different form of um, management skills. I think we're definitely more affirmative. You know, a no is a no and a yes is a yes. Um, uh, I, I don't think that this talk and business of corruption would be so rife, if you like, if a woman were at the helm. I think with a woman at the head, there'd be a lot more love and understanding in the sport, yeah. Yannick Lamarek believes that the targets set by the SDGs on gender equality are achievable. What we know is that it's not impossible, that we do have the public policy instruments, we do have the business case to achieve it. So if there is a real political will, it's, uh, there is no reason why we could not achieve at least uh, political uh, parity at the uh, national level. Maybe at the local level it might take some more time. 
if we could uh, basically lower the structural barriers faced by women in terms of access to uh, to the labor market, we could increase the world uh, GDP by 12 trillion dollars. That means we could increase it by uh, uh, almost uh, 15%. The uh, over 15 percent, and so and so, the, a number of uh, CEOs realize that uh, uh, gender equality and women empowerment is good business. And what we are seeing right now is that we are seeing increasingly efforts to uh, promote uh, uh, women in leadership position and uh, reduce the structural barriers that they uh, they face. Our president always says. Give women a chance to choose. Give them the voice. You should not choose for them. That the country will never develop if there is a certain group of people that are left behind. So they all have to come as a community come up and the country will be developed. Part of it is just building their capacity and their confidence to realize that in fact they can pursue whatever opportunities they want. And I think part of that also has to do with the media. Sort of uh, demonstrating through uh, the narrative that basically girls can participate in what they want and really highlighting the stories of girls and women who have been very successful in, in non-traditional fields. Let's give the last word to Josephine Kulia, founder and executive director of the Sambura Girls Foundation in Kenya. Uh, what I'll tell girls across the globe is uh, girls are powerful, girls have all it takes and if they're just given the chance, uh, especially those who are in school, if you already have the chance, that is the only chance you need to be better than anyone out there. So you have the platform, use it well and get to do what your heart is calling you to do, follow your passion and your talents. That's it from the Global Development Podcast this month. I'm Liz Ford and the producer is Carrie Stewart. All our programmes are available on The Guardian's website. That's theguardian.com slash global hyphen development. And on SoundCloud, iTunes and all podcasting apps. Next month, we're in Paris for the historic Climate Change Conference. Until next month, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.